Hello, uh, this is Podcast in Space, is that what we call it? I can't it even is, remember it is, anymore. Yes. It, number 15, it is the 10th of October. Uh, I'm Alyssa. And I'm Lee. And we're making a video game. Yeah, I mean, we've done it before, but this one's a little more long-winded. There, there are many other like it, but this one is ours. Uh, Actually, the other ones we made are also ours. Well, yeah. we're doing it again anyway. Yeah, I mean, we probably won't regret it too much. So anyway, so um, it's been a bit over a month since our last um, confession. Update. Yep, since our last <laughs> confession. So, um, so yeah, it's the tenth of October, Tuesday afternoon. It's a sunny-ish day in Sydney, and we've been working on our respective tasks all day. I've been plugging away at some of the news articles that will appear in the game. And Alyssa, what have you been working on? Uh, I've been staring at leather jackets and also, I suppose, coding for the majority of the time, if we're being accurate. (laughs) Um, We thought we would kick off with a couple of quick updates or or just like news items, I guess. Actually, really just one news item. We spoke last time about how the uh, consoles currently have a home down in Melbourne at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. They are still going to be on display down there until I believe the 5th of October as part of the Codebreakers Women in Games exhibition. Um, so you can still go down and play that and uh, check out all the awesome hardware that uh, we've built for the game. And yeah, let us know what you think in forums or in tweets and stuff like that. Um, so that's going to cover all of Melbourne International Games Week. So for anyone who's got plans to run around and check stuff out in Melbourne, you haven't missed your opportunity to play objects in space with the console setup. So this will be the first time that we've um, not shown the game at PAX Australia, but and, and we are sorry to all the people who are planning on going, but we've shown it twice there already, and our main priority is just focusing on the game at this point. Yeah, I'm not even going to be down there, which will be the first time since PAX Australia started that I haven't been there, which is kind of depressing, but... At the same time, you know, I have work to do and just don't have the money to fly down unless it was for a company thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a mixed bag going down there because it's always expensive and a lot of work. It's rewarding, but it's a difficult week as well. So, yeah, we're just going to leave the game sitting there and playable on its own. I'm still really grateful that we came up with a demo that teaches players so that we don't have to have a developer there explaining it. It's a nice touch. Yeah, it's probably kind of useful. That must be why games have tutorials. Mm. You remember there was that really big, like, anti-tutorial push when manuals were starting to get phased out? Like, partially because games were too simple and partially because people didn't like the idea of losing manuals. I still kind of like manuals. It just seems... It seems interesting to think about tutorials as a general concept being something that unwelcome for a time. Yeah, I, I mean, some games sort of really need it, but my biggest complaint is just, like, as, if you can't skip the tutorial, if you played it before, then the game can get in the bin. Like, that's that's kind of one of my gripes. Like, I remember that the worst possible example of that was, um, uh, what's that thing? Damn it. Um, you know, that guy, Peter Molyneux. He has weird ideas and makes good <laughs> games. And um, Which was the game? Black and White, that was it. Um, yeah, but it had this very, very long-winded tutorial that then, like, immediately led into the open-world game. Uh, well, you know, the full game. And it did have the small problem, though, that if you wanted to hit new game, you had to go through that tutorial again, and it was, like, 15 minutes and unskippable. Mm. And painfully dull, because, it, like, it really forced you to, like, you know, click here, click here, etc. So, you know, while tutorials are useful, it's hard not to be a little bit... Um, 
yeah, I can see why people get frustrated, especially if they get very used to the game. I do really miss getting like chunky manuals that were like basically the equivalent of extra reading. Like you got to the end of the game. Now, if you're still interested in more things about classic trains, here's a giant textbook about it. I learned a lot of what I know about like the origin, the origins of a lot of locomotives and stuff from the manual for Railroad Tycoon. And also at the end of the Microprose ones, they used to put a little like you know why we made this game and you know what our research was like and stuff like that, sort of trivia about the making of the game, which is really cool. Mm. Um, the the other thing is though they actually still kind of do that just not in manuals like if you actually bother to purchase the guidebooks for a lot of games they tend to be very like they, they tend to be like the missing manual but going into excruciating detail uh, but so they, they're not just strategy guides then no they sometimes a lot of the time they'll have like art sections and things like that that, that can be quite interesting mm. so I, it's part of the reason i still have you know, I've got a hard copy version of the official game guide for Fallout 3 just because I like the art and I like the big sort of crazy old sort of hardback thing. We did actually do a, uh, a manual that was kind of like further reading and bits of information and stuff for Metricide. Um, yeah. It was di- digital only, but, um, you know, we didn't really have the resources to, to do something physical. I mean, we still don't, but back then we also didn't and... <laughs> It was cool, though. I remember, like, writing that and formatting it was a whole lot of fun. Hopefully we get a chance to do something like that for objects. I know we both like to. Yeah, and it opened with a short story of mine, too, for, mm. to set the tone for Metricide that I quite liked. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, we've deviated somewhat from news. The only other thing that I wanted to mention briefly is that we've now been working full-time, both of us working full-time on this game for a while. Like... Uh, you know, we've always had uh, other people dropping bits and pieces in and doing part-time work. I've been um, ideally two to three days a week on the game up until a few months ago when I quit teaching to go full-time on this. Um, I think probably one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is that I really did need to go full-time. There's um, the, the contract economy that I spoke about on the last podcast is something that I worked on for two straight months to get to a point where I think I'm happy with it. So if I just extrapolate that out by you know, turning it into a three, three and a half month thing by me having to go full time on it, then I can already see the amount of design work required not being finished by the time the game comes out early next year. So yeah, I am very grateful that we've managed to turn that corner and both go full time for the last little while. Yeah, you know, I suppose in retrospect, it's not too surprising that an open world game that's a cross between a simulation and a trading game and an RPG turns out to require a lot of work to create the content. Yeah, we really should have seen this one coming. That That's kind of on us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's what we've been up to in terms of news, but um, development on the game. I think that's why a lot of people would listen to this podcast. That's my impression. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about development of the game. Have you been developmenting on the game lately? Uh, on and off, you know, here and there, about once every 24 hours for about 8 to 10 hours usually, sometimes a bit less. Approximately, you might say? Ah, yes, what a good seg into, yes, so the, the final playable ship is now uh, in there and working, the Proxima-class ship. The Proxima is kind of, um, we, we kind of borrowed, there's, there's three playable ships outside of the tutorial vessel, and uh, as we've spoken about before, we kind of borrowed the, I suppose, the upgrade path from Freelancer, and um, I think they did the same thing in Privateer. Uh, Privateer one, just one, I think. But basically, you've got sort of your first ship is kind of a broken down freighter, and then you can pick to either get a faster 
slicker, more combat-y sort of ship. Or you can get a still better but intentionally much larger and slower kind of ship. So it's like, do you want to be a much more hardcore freighter person or do you want to be more into missions and combat? Mm. Uh, and the Proxima is the big freighter. So that's the one we, we kind of like aesthetically have taken a lot of our cues from uh, much more industrial uh, designs of ships. So they, instead of looking all slick like the Enceladus, this one looks like it has a lot of uh, metal girders and, and sort of gunmetal colors and things like that. Mm. It looks and feels quite heavy. So, I mean, those are both in there now. We haven't yet got to a point where we have a ship buying and selling station yeah. anywhere so technically they're in there we just have to load them up as a separate i want to play with this thing from the menu but uh that sort of stuff is all being worked on actually that's a nice segue to get into what we're doing with visual interface stuff so i've spent most of the last like six weeks working on ui stuff so i've been taking what we already have and adding more things buttons uh check boxes and uh sliders and like you know trays and things like that and the reason being um, that a lot of the remaining UI we need to do required much more complicated widgets. So that's kind of what we've been doing. We have, um, so now for instance, we've got the in-game kind of encyclopedia type thing where you can uh, like browse things and read articles and stuff like that. Um, and I'm also currently working on new visual trade screens. So it gives you visual representations of all the different items that you need, etc. So yeah, we'll have, uh, like, for, for the time being, we've been testing all of these systems with an awesomely clunky old DOS prompt. Yeah, which you might have seen pictures of. It, it's, it's intentionally obtuse, hopefully not, like, it's still usable, and if you know what you're doing, it can be quite fast, because you can just type the commands, but it's the type of thing where the intention was never to have it as the, the primary interface for doing trading and getting contracts and stuff. It was intended that, you know, you'd always have this kind of graphical interface that looks kind of slick. Uh, if a bit antique, and then when you went into the backwater things, you would stumble across this terminal and think, oh, I'm just going to go pick up some, what is this text interface? And sort of realize, you know, you've come to this backwater space station that's so crap, their trading terminal is like running on a 286. So we've got, uh, we, we did a bit of a sit down day the other day where we just got pen and paper and started scratching out all the different things that we actually needed, all the different interfaces and stuff like that. And we kind of narrowed it down to two basic formats, one for the accepting and well, the checking out of contracts and another to do with just buying and selling goods. So every other sort of sub system that requires a visual interface kind of fits into one of those two things so it'll be a kind of um, for trading you know your your stuff your ship's cargo hold slash inventory if you're talking about um, you know components for your vessel or something like that will be on the left and the ones that are being purchased or sold to whatever is on the right from the current space station or mechanic um, so yeah we, we put together a little like bunch of sketches of maybe what was it 10 or so like eight or ten different screens. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so they will need a bunch of different sliders and widgets and things. A lot of this stuff was stuff that um, I thought we weren't going to be able to do for quite some time. But you told me uh, relatively early on that there was a bunch of this stuff that was going to be inaccessible for technical reasons, but I think a few times throughout the course of development, 
things that were not possible accidentally kind of became possible because other things required them. Yeah, I mean, it's also one of the advantages of the game, I guess, blowing out the way that it has is that there are things that I figured, you know, in order for us to finish it fast, we can't, you know, I won't have the time to do X, Y, or Z. Um, like it would just take me too long, but by this point you sort of get to the point where you've got all these really complicated UI things and so stuff like tooltips and mouse over things are certainly now possible. Whereas before I was trying to simplify the UI to something we could do much faster. I think also one of the things I've observed when uh, like showing this game to, uh, to close friends and just watching people is that tinkering is something people seem to enjoy. Like you get presented with a really complicated screen like the bridge of the series and trying to figure out what it all does is actually a relatively enjoyable thing. So if we, and, and this speaks to what you were saying earlier about keeping tutorials kind of minimalized, we've got enough in our, our sort of opening tutorial to teach people how to move around and what the different screens are, but not a great deal else. And if we do have just really simple things that allow people to poke around and see for themselves and go, right, I wonder what this does, and click on some help for it and go, ooh, and start to piece the systems together themselves, I think people will find that a lot more enjoyable, especially people who would be interested in this type of game. Yeah, and I think the same thing's true of the engine room. Starting to prod it and figuring out what happens when you click on stuff is going to be interesting. Yeah, like we're not, we're not going to intentionally obscure how the game works, but it will come in the form of either tooltips or owner's manuals or news articles. Like I've got, uh, for instance, a review that pops up relatively early on of the latest grappling arm. Uh, I can't remember which company it was that distributed it, but it's just a way of informing the player that there is such a thing as a grappling arm and that they can use it to retrieve cargo in space and do salvaging operations. So it just keeps it in universe, that sort of thing. I suppose the... um the thing that's often quite tough is that we have to find a, a working balance between uh, between making the game feel like a kind of sim, like a sim for something that doesn't really exist, even if it exists in a fairly simplistic video gamey 2D world. Uh, the balance between that and making it actually playable, like we're not trying to create something that is so hyper-realistic that if you don't understand exactly what happens on like when different voltages go across different sort of uh, materials or whatever, like that's not really how it's supposed to work, but it's still supposed to be complicated enough that you get you find it rewarding to, to learn how all the bits and pieces work. So as we do the UI, there is always this challenge of it has to both be, it has to be usable, it has to make some degree of sense, uh, it has to be internally consistent, and it does mean we have to um, still make sure that it's, it uh, it actually fits everything that we want. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is that we are clearly influenced from a UI perspective um, by this sort of early 90s um, era of computing with like DOS and early visual interfaces and stuff like that. But um, at the same time, you know, we've got the drop-down messages that appear to let you know when a torpedo or a pirate has been detected near you and that sort of thing, which probably look like something that would be more at home on an iOS device. And they still look perfectly in keeping with this, um, you know, old, like, Amiga or Windows 3.1 type of vibe. But, yeah, it's just interesting to note the clash of styles. But I think I think it sort of ends up yeah, being harmonious. Using some modern UX forms, but... You know, they're done in on a 320 by 240 screen sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think if, if there's any doubt in my mind that some of these uh, things that are now intuitive or standard in UI interfaces 
that UI interfaces, that's redundant. Um, yeah, things that are now standard in UI, they won't look out of place by virtue of the art style, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, but that's all coming together well. So we'll have a whole bunch of you know, awesome visual interfaces that can uh, give you a bit more of a pictorial representation of things. I suppose this doesn't mean too much to people who are listening in who've never had to sit through the DOS-style interface like we have for the last year and a half for building features and testing, but our, but our priority was... It'll be really exciting to move past that. Yeah, like our priority was get the features working first so we can start building the economies that underlie them and that sort of stuff, and then make it pretty and friendly later on. And yeah, so far that seems to have been working for us. Um, but yeah, speaking of building economies, we can move on to the next thing, which is... Um, so I've spoken, I think, at length about the contract economy, the idea that you've got contracts that you need to take that will allow you to buy large quantities of goods and take them from one place to another, or sometimes not buy them and just transport them on behalf of another company and get paid a flat fee at the end and that sort of thing. Um, and part of the reason why we wanted to do that was to make sure that there was a reason why the player might not want to deviate from their current course and you know, help someone who's in distress or something like that. So it becomes more of an interesting decision to have to make. It was, you know, ooh, do I, do I piss off this company in order to go and uh, assist that person? But um, one of the problems that we've got is there's a large number of companies you can potentially work for in the game. We've got 50-odd, I think just over 50 different companies, each of which has their own completely different set of contracts. And among those contracts, you know, you'll... Um, the more work you do for a different company, the more contracts will be made available, and you don't want to mess up a contract because it really, really kills your ability to get work. But where I kind of realized there was a bit of a problem with that is in the, the quantity of them, meaning that you could still safely make a decent profit off only having 10 companies that you currently work for. So I thought, well, let's put myself in the shoes of a gamer who's always looking to try and break this system and see if uh, they can find a way to exploit it. And I thought, well, yeah, I would easily do this. I would grab something that was to transport, you know, 20 units of gold or something like that from one place to another, um, something where I'm just transporting it on a company's behalf, where I don't have to pay any money to pick up the gold because it's just moving someone else's cargo around. And then I would go and just straight up sell it and my reputation with that company be damned. Um, do that 50 times, and that is a large chunk of change right out the gate and a potentially very large exploit. Um, so the way that I kind of decided to get around that, which I, I think I always had in the back of my mind, but I didn't quite realize it until I'd finished working on the economy side of things, was um, at any point the player really shouldn't have more than a handful of different employers. Like, you're a freelancer and you'll be permitted to go and work for as many people as you like, but by spreading out the uh, ways in which you ingratiate yourself with companies at the very beginning, um, I make them that much more valuable. So there are some where, like, if you complete a particular, um, a particular story that involves you working for a character that happens to have an in with a certain company, then, you know, cool. You, um, you might get a message a little bit later on going, hey, thank you again for helping me out. Just so you know, I told this or that company about you and they might be in touch soon, something to that effect. But then there's also a couple of other little ways that we could do it, like if you happen to show up on a small mining colony out in the sticks, and that is where the local mining company operates, then it might be as simple as, by virtue of being there, you can walk up and say, hi, got a ship, 
you need any cargo hold and there you go you know bob's your uncle you've just got uh, got a gig with them straight away so it really kind of depends and there are certainly some companies that have much more lucrative contracts than others so um, it'll be easier to sort of space it out but i think the key thing is that by virtue of the contract economy taking that long to put together um i've very much decided that the other other economies the um, other ways to make money whether that be you know taking on bounty hunting style missions or going and uh, hacking into other ships uh, regardless of what they are those other smaller economies will all be balanced to meet or to be consistent with the larger trading and contract economy so uh, yeah from here on out for instance if i decide that it's um, too easy to make money and you're able to buy things more quickly than you should be able to i'll just make the things more expensive rather than making the ability to make money more hard so that's kind of where we're at it's a it's a big milestone for me like a big kind of weight off my shoulders well you're back on story stuff now aren't you yeah yeah i've been working like just today on doing nothing but writing some news articles that will appear throughout different systems in the opening week and it is a very very different thing to go from staring at numbers for so long to staring at words and looking back into the wiki and trying to figure out where everything might come from which journalists should say what and what perspectives they might take about different events so it's all very much world building um and i suppose the contracts are as well to an extent but it's just a it's a hell of a shift going from something that numbers focused to something that much less precise and more narrative driven um but yeah that that's kind of what we've been working on i've um I've drawn up a couple of flowcharts of what the economy looks like and what some of the stories look like to help visualize it for myself as well. Um, I think we did just drop one of those into the forums as well. If anyone wants to jump in and take a look at the flowchart of an example of a story, it's a little bit spoilery because it does tell you the overall structure of what's going on, but it doesn't reveal too much of the details. But it might give you a bit of an idea of what the size of a typical story in objects would be like. And we've got you know, um, something like a hundred plus stories in there. <laughs> That's going to be a huge amount. Yeah, it's it really is. It's it's a surprisingly large game in terms of pure content. Like I, I, the, I think the the balance between uh, with any game, a balance between uh, someone getting bored of your game before they run out of content, or uh, someone running out of content before they get bored of your game, and arguably either one is is a problem. But trying to find that sort of, yeah. I, I think the thing is, when we first spoke about this being an open world game, we both had blueprints of what an open world game looked like in our minds that necessitated a fairly large amount of content, and um, yeah, like. I think in the time since Objects in Space was started, there have been a fair few games that have been technically in an open environment, but you wouldn't call them open world games in the grand tradition of your you know, Red Dead Redemptions or Grand Theft Autos or anything like that. Yeah. But here we are. <laughs> yeah, and somehow approaching the, the point where all the content's in the game and things are falling into place, and it's really exciting. Yeah, so... I think that's kind of it from us for the moment. So unless there's anything else you wanted to add, Alyssa? No, I don't think so. So the next one will be after you get back from Games Week? Most likely, yeah. So I will have nothing to report because I'm not going down there for anything work-related. I'm just going to... I think this will be the first time I've been to a video games expo just as a, a person. Punter. A punter. That's what they're called. I've only done it once, and amusingly it was PAX Prime, now PAX huh. West. <laughs> 
so it was kind of like yeah the, the only time i've actually been as a as a you know person who's just there to enjoy it was to the I, I like, like punter the, the Pun- bi- punter makes you sound athletic the biggest i'm not athletic <laughs> the, the the biggest of them so yeah well so that's our plan so i uh, might see some familiar faces down at melbourne games week we'll keep on plugging away on the game and we'll give you an update in early november all right see you later bye everybody bye.